This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, win time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and much more. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit MyFlexLearning.com forward slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com forward slash B-E. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode. You are listening once again to the Authority Podcast on the BE Podcast Network. I'm really pleased today to be joined by my guests, Landon Mascarenas and Donnie Tran. Landon is an educator, writer, and democracy builder who lives in Denver, Colorado. And Donnie is a partner at the Center for Innovation and Education. He was formerly an assistant superintendent in Boston Public Schools and Fulton County Schools in Georgia. Together, they are co-founders of the Open System Institute, and their book is called The Open System, Redesigning Education and Reigniting Democracy. It's published by Harvard Education Press. Landon and Donnie, welcome to The Authority. Wonderful to be here. Awesome to be here. Thanks for having us, Ross. Absolutely. So one thing I wanted to start out with is, is this common trait that you observed when you were kind of doing your research around schools that were failing and it was families are cut off from the decision-making processes and administrators are divorced from the realities of their students' lives. Talk to us a little bit to kind of just get us clued in here about what was your process, right? The how, how long of a timeline was this when you were working with these schools, observing them, and um, when we're defining them as failing schools, right? What were the the areas in which these schools were struggling and how that kind of related to when you started to see this common trend of, okay, well, there's, you know, there's something that's maybe not the initial thing, right? That they obviously assumed or else they probably would have been doing more of it. But yeah, this is the common factor here. So what did these schools look like? What did you observe? And, you know, what were the, the red flags they were having that were identifying them as failing? Uh, well, first off, Ross, thanks for having us on the show. Thanks for all that you're doing to bring information and expertise and conversations to schools and leaders around the country. So thanks for the opportunity. It's an honor. And Donnie and I are really excited to have this conversation, and I appreciate where you just jump into it. Donnie spent a lot of time in school districts in Georgia and Boston, out in California. We met in graduate school. I was After that, I was in Denver Public Schools working in the family engagement office and actually working on some school turnaround issues in particular. And one of the big reflection points as they were doing, as we were doing a kind of a holistic overview of previous, maybe struggling or challenged turnaround efforts, which we know that happens a lot in systems, was the lack of community partnership and community ownership over the work. And I think there were some real challenges. We could all probably point to academic outcomes, parent satisfaction outcomes, student satisfaction outcomes. There was a plethora of kind of qualitative and quantitative data, yet it was pretty clear that the lack of community investment and buy-in into this was having major implications for communities' trust in the very institutions of education in their community. And actually, the initiative that I got to work on then, which was called the Year Zero Turnaround Project in Denver Public Schools, is actually a case study in the book 
which really was this idea of let's actually change up the timeline and actually give community a full year to be involved in a co-creation process to design what comes next in the schools. And it was right around that time Donnie and I started having lots of conversations about what he was seeing, what I was seeing, and how this didn't really fit into the bucket of family engagement, quote unquote. And that what we were really talking about is whether or not communities were owning and co-creating and co-producing the value of education and building new reservoirs of trust, which led us then to work with a variety of folks from around the country, community organizers, district leaders, network leaders, to come together to say, we're all having different vantage points, we're all using different language, and what would it mean to co-create a set of values or principles? And that's what really you're seeing in the book. So, and so when we talk about an open system, how do you define that? Yeah, we, we think about an open system in contrast to obviously a closed system. And we're probably all quite familiar with what a closed system feels like. It feels non-responsive mm-hmm. to the, its environment, you know, put simply. And a lot of the ideas around open and closed systems come from a pretty rich body of research around biology, cybernetics, organizational design. And fundamentally, a closed system is unresponsive to its environment. And by contrast, an open system has information flowing in both directions. So you have information about the local context coming into the system and information about what's happening and how the system is responding going back out into the community. And those, and we also think about an open system as being capable of really rich and sustained co-creation and co-production with its community. And, and so it's doing what Landon said in his example with year zero, that they, an open system is able to actively bring in sort of expertise from the community and involve them in the decision-making and design processes. In my work, I've collaborated directly with hundreds of educators to support their success. Do you know which of their ed tech frustrations comes up time and again? The sheer number of tools out there and the difficulty of knowing which ones schools like theirs are using to get results. IXL is different. Not only does it perform the functions of dozens of tools, it's currently delivering results for one in four U.S. students, including those in 95 of the top 100 districts. Another major pain point that comes up when a school is excited to implement a new tool only to find out the teachers hate it. Yikes. It helps to know that IXL is loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, saving them time on prep work while enabling them to better support student learning. IXL is research proven to accelerate achievement. Studies across 45 states show that IXL schools outperform non-IXL schools on state assessments. And independent research from Johns Hopkins University verifies that IXL meets ESSA Tier 1 standards. With those results combined with IXL's teacher-friendly reputation, what more could you ask for? If you have a goal to increase achievement for all students, make sure to find out what IXL can do for you. Visit IXL.com forward slash BE for a demo. That's IXL.com forward slash BE. So we're going to talk um, a little bit later here about the shared languages between the schools and the communities, right? And the kind of terminologies and ways. But as far as language is concerned, even this terminology between open system and closed system, do most school leaders, are, are they familiar with those terms? Do they think of that if they're operating more or less a closed system, do they think of that? Are they doing it intentionally or have they failed to intentionally create an open system? It's a really important question. In my experience working in family engagement and you know in family and community partnership work, I found that the term family engagement was one of these buzzwords in education that we, if we lined up a hundred people, we get a hundred different ideas about what right. family engagement means from a strat- strategic perspective or from an opera from like just or a conceptual perspective. One of the reasons that Donnie and I really gravitated to the open system concept and open versus closed is it, it accesses very deep schema in people mm-hmm. and for us as humans. 
And when we go and work with schools and districts and we say, is your school open to the community it serves? We're accessing a whole different type of conversation then at that point. And I've watched mm-hmm. it now happen in rural, suburban, and urban communities across Colorado, New Mexico, and this country. When we have a conversation about open versus closed, we are having a very different type of conversation with educators and leaders about this. And we're actually unpacking significant amount of conscious and unconscious choices that they are starting to interrogate in ways that they would never get from a very straight up family engagement strategy conversation. Um, It's conversations about how the school uh, is structured, um, the types of materials they're using, the way parents walk in the building, the types of outreach they're doing in different kind of connotations, the the models of of concepts they're using fundamentally flow in a completely different direction when we start talking about openness versus simple strategies. Yeah. What, Donnie, what does it, I guess, communicate to families or other community stakeholders when the schools begin to make a clear effort to be more open, independent of what they're what information they're communicating, right? How effective they even are at communicating, but when they're able to illustrate and demonstrate clearly, okay, we're making this an intention of ours, right? We are viewing you as a stakeholder in this work, as somebody who we should be engaging more broadly. And now we're making strides toward that. But I would imagine just even kind of taking those initial steps of introducing this is going to make an impression and and start some progress. Yeah, absolutely. When we see when we see leaders take this kind of work on, it is both daunting and deeply energizing uh, mm-hmm. because you are going from engaging with folks who have a certain set of shared expertise, uh, other educators, to actually broadening the sphere of what expertise matters within your building. Mm-hmm. And so you're actually actively saying, you know what, this is your this is your school too. And you have knowledge and expertise that's really important to us. And, you know, families have been kept out of the ways that schools work for so long at this point that it, it's, it's often kind of a shock and a, a little bit of a, of some, a reckoning to get used to uh, for families to say, yeah, I'm, I'm welcomed within the advisory and decision-making process. And I think a couple things really do happen there. One, trust goes up. Uh, and second, families, uh, the solutions that are, are developed benefit because families do have good ideas uh, and they bring that. And the ownership of those ideas, of whatever plans come out, goes way up. And so you actually get better implementation and better follow through from the community because they were involved in creating it. We all know that people buy into things that they help build. And so by starting that process, leaders can really can take advantage of that. Yeah, and I imagine you're going to get a lot more constructive input when the intentional process and invitation is clearly there, right? Like if I sat here and I asked Donnie 10 questions in a row, um, eventually Landon's going to chime in and he's going to be like, I need to get my voice in here somehow. And he's not going to be in his most relaxed state because he's just saying, I need to, I need somebody to hear me. I have something to say here. Maybe uh, Donnie's, Donnie's pretty good at the answers. Though, so I could just kind of throw it back and just let it go. Just coast, just coast. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, he might just kind of, but the same with the, the parents, right? Where it's, it's that a lot of times where I, I think that the effects of, of, stress and and agitation and just kind of urgency right that that ends up turning into contentiousness when that's not even anybody's intent Mm -hmm. but it's just that okay i i have something i want to contribute here i need to i have to ask a question i have an idea i have a thought and there's a piece of okay there's missing context like you mentioned earlier Lena, with some of the family engagement efforts, some of that is so granular without mm-hmm. the broader context, right? And when we, if we have schools that are using tools like digital portfolios, for example, that can keep parents more up to date on, on individual assignments in between progress reports and report cards, but they don't really have the context for, okay, but what's the curriculum? What are the learning goals? Where are we going here? Like, right. 
you're sort of engaging me, but yet I really don't even know what I'm looking at, right? So what about the broader picture of what's happening here? And, and just, I guess, again, saying, okay, we want you to know what we're doing because we want to hear what you think about it. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we change everything we're doing every time somebody has a different idea, but the more that you kind of understand what we're looking for here, the more, number one, you might think a lot of it's pretty good. And number two, when you have a, an idea for a tweak, it could kind of fit in with our objectives. I mean, the research is exceptionally clear about this. More minds and diverse perspectives on problems lead to better solutions. Right. Um, we know that from the private sector, the public sector, research is uh, almost ironclad on this. And so if we think about the future of public education, we have to think about a, a future where we bring diverse perspectives in and the perspective of the community we're there to serve. Uh, and even if you want to say the taxpayers who are literally funding the public enterprise that we're all employed by in education. You know, Donnie and I really like metaphors around energy and natural kind of things. And I really think sometimes the closed system is like a seawall that's keeping out the ocean. But the water keeps rising and the concerns and the energy and they kind of have a little spigot that kind of lets out a little bit of it here and there. And I think that's been our family engagement channel. It's been the back to school night. Hey, you have an hour to show up and your time slots five minutes. Parents don't like it. Educators don't like it. But that's the narrow channel for openness or the flyer home. Or like you said, maybe a variety of technical solutions like a digital portfolio. Mm -hmm. But are we dealing with the larger adaptive design questions of education with our parents and families and students. And I think that the schools that we've worked with, the communities that we've partnered with that have done this along the way, when they do and open up those questions, it's incredible what results from it. Is it harder? Yes. Is it sometimes more challenging? Does it require new skills? And that's why we wrote the book. We wanted to actually put some of the moves out there for people to take this on because it can be done. Did you come across any findings about kind of when and why these systems became closed, like how, how it evolves into that? Well, much of the legacy of our institutions comes from uh, a long history of expert-driven change efforts, mm -hmm. uh, that there are people who know best and they design the system to operate uh, with that expertise at its core. And it, at, at, just by nature, that tends to then separate the, the community from the system and say that we know more and better than, than you do and your expertise is less valuable. Mm -hmm. And so many of the systems are then designed to, to like, enhance and, and kind of keep on uh, reifying that type of expertise. And this, this is true, not just in education, but really across so many of our institutions, our public sector institutions as well. And Landon, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. I think that what Donnie said is totally right on. I mean, I think the, the idea of legacy closed systems is the idea of things that were built that haven't been redesigned. And that are kind of calcified with all the perspectives of those designers at that flashpoint in time, whether it's like in the 30s or the 40s or the 90s, and that we have to see our public systems as places for constant reimagining and constant redesign and less of these islands that get designed and then gravitate away from the community, but rather places that should be in a constant state of interchange. And and honestly, Ross, we think this has major, major democratic implications for our society. If the first touch point for democracy for many of our families, and particularly newcomer families, or even just any American family, is our education system, and it's actually not a place where their values and insights and beliefs are practiced, or we don't actually all come together to design it together and practice democracy locally, but yet we say that education is the kind of forge of our democracy, what are the macro democratic implications of that, of your voice not being heard, of not knowing how to make decisions together, of bitter political acrimonious fights that we see in the news every single day? And that right. the idea of practicing democracy in the design of our school system 
is integral to the functioning of our larger society. Right. Yeah. I mean, you could see how a lot of times, right, there's, I guess, criticisms of the the education system. Oh, it hasn't changed in a hundred years. And I think in a lot of ways in the micro within schools, classrooms, that's not necessarily so, but systemically, you know, you can think well, if you go back of, I don't know, 70 years to what would be happening in schools where there was probably naturally going to be less interest in communities being involved you know the parents of the students who were in school at that time might not have gotten to go to school themselves or gone past about fourth grade so thinking well i don't necessarily have that much of an opinion on what they're doing and also there was a time in society where there was more of an implicit trust and respect for the work that was happening there, right? And but then at a certain point in time, things evolved. The education gap closed. The information gap closed. Right now, people in the communities have had more experience with schools. Their educational attainment is more, you know, relevant to Expe- the people who are working in the schools and their expectation of saying, "Well, yeah, now I really should be involved in what's happening here." And to your point of the impact this can have on democracy, people in communities can see that too and say, look, <laughs> you know, we not, not only is it about having their voice heard or not, but saying if we're not developing the next generation here to be really strong, critical, not only contributors to, but protectors of democratic systems, and we feel like that's not happening, we need to have some say in that. And, you know, and and then if they really don't know what's going on, they're going to fill in some kind of narrative about it. And typically that's, it's not going to be a positive one. It's going to be, well, if they're not, if they're not cluing us in, clearly they must be hiding something. Yeah. I mean, I think that we, we, and we've been speaking a little bit about that here, that trust in the intentions and efficacy of our public institutions has been declining for a long time. And, and I agree with you, Ross, that like what people used to have sort of like a generalized faith that, okay, these institutions work for us and are going to do a competent job. At the same time, we know that that era, things are not all rosy for all stakeholders. And what we've seen is greater and greater visibility of the ways in which the system is not designed to provide for all of its stakeholders in an equitable way. And so what we, I think that it's, we're in a position now where these institutions have to re-earn that trust and particularly re-earn that trust from those who it has served least well. And we think that a, a truly open system actually will center those voices and bring them in explicitly to help right. understand their experience, empathize with them, get on the same page about their, the, what their experience has been like and then design to meet their needs. And what I think you'll often see is the things that work for them actually work for lots of other people too, and actually are going to even more deeply optimize the way that the system is serving everyone. Yeah, and I, one of the things that stood out, and this relates to what you just said, it's kind of described as the open systems that are adaptable and responsive to the needs of students, families, and communities that necessitates a two-way dialogue because it's not just about hearing from them what are their needs but it's giving them context and understanding of what their needs may be right to understand okay like here are the the larger objective education system here's what we're looking at as far as the future of work the future of society the future of communities right and the thing the kind of skills and competencies we're trying to build and then based on that we're Kind of in dialogue around okay how might we best do that what are the ways to ensure equitable you know opportunity and access to that and all of that but again like if it if, if it's just about a suggestion box <laughs> saying okay everybody come in and say what you think and you but you have no idea what we're thinking about or what we're trying to do or what we're even what we're already doing you know it, it might not you're not really responding to needs necessarily at that point because nobody's able to accurately identify their needs without more of a dialogue. Yeah, I think one of the things that we dig into in the book a lot is 
it's not actually well first a couple things like our normal modes of engaging our communities are inadequate to the task of really co-creating with them mm -hmm. focus groups and surveys while useful aren't sufficient to really build things with communities and so we have to create a different kind of space and that involves inviting folks in a very different way into our buildings and actually composing them around doing real work together and so you know i know that landon has done work around rethinking school discipline policies alongside communities and it's really about bringing those people in and keeping them in a sustained group over time where they're actually learning from one another they're learning about the issues they're spending time really thinking and deliberating about the best options and the current state of things rather than just being sort of like a outburst of of random opinions right which which is not a way of getting into a coherent aligned solution to a core issue yeah what would some of that co-creation look like in practice well the thing that we really talk a lot about in the book is you know this is also an, an area that like has become a little buzzy in the education space the idea of co-creation so we really like dive into like what we really mean by it and i think that there's a few things that we talk about in terms of principles. First is you have to design a breakthrough space. And that's a space that actually has the opportunity in co-creation to like really cut through the closed system. And we think there's a few things you got to do in that. And you talked about this earlier, Ross, is you got to get like really clear about what the thing is you're going to co-create. A lot of times these community groups come together and they take on everything. They try to boil the ocean from a co-creation perspective. And what mm -hmm. we've discovered is that actually co-creation actually thrives in the depths and actually dwindles in the breadth. And that if you get really clear on a question, like what are we going to do with school discipline and school resource officers in Boulder? Or how are we going to design an internship program? Um, you get a level of depth and clarity and understanding from the full group because you then have to build a shared reality. You have to have common facts and understanding because our, uh, our media uh, system is so fragmented. We have to like essentially go on a learning journey together. Um, we have to think about then the composition of the group to do that. And we actually talk a little bit about how the way that we do task forces and committees is broken in education. We uh, are addicted to all sorts of closed system behavior, like one meeting for an hour a month all year long. I mean, that's insane, right? Like no one likes that. No one enjoys it. You can't build culture. You can't build urgency. You can't build shared understanding. The processes that we recommend have a different sort of cadence. It goes deep, and, and but it also goes quick and actually catalyzes with some sort of result that then the community can say, oh, we see our work actually then going back into the system to actually change results. And the open leaders that we've worked with are really adept at saying, I want to get really clear. I want to build a really inclusively democratic group that looks like our community and is representative of the values that we care about, and then is going to move to then model creative democracy. Um, instead of saying, hey, we're going to do 50 plus one for every one of our decisions, let's take a crack at consensus. And we've now done consensus protocols in very diverse political context, where you essentially seek 90% agreement on a set of outcomes. And we've taken on complex, thorny issues and we've seen leaders take this on and it practices a whole different type of discussion where you're literally going back and forth and actually saying, do I really agree or do I not so agree or am I blocking? And it actually creates an opportunity for that much more dialogue and discussion versus seeking a brittle majority of 50 plus one that then excludes 49% of your community. And we've now seen this happen so many times that we go, man, so many of our community members want to see this progress move forward on issues. And it's really important that we name it, put it out there, and give people a guide on how to do it. And now a quick break for a word from our sponsor, MyFlex Learning. Let's talk about flex time in schools. The potential benefits to our students make it totally worth exploring. There's more time for personalized learning, increased choice and agency for students, and the increased engagement that comes along with it, dedicated time for intervention, and overall, as school leaders, it provides you and your faculty more tools to increase academic achievement. But the implementation and management of flex time can be a challenge. Tricky logistics and a lack of clear accountability systems can prevent teachers from buying in. It can hold you back from ensuring students make good use of their time. That's why I'm pleased to share 
that MyFlex Learning provides a solution to these challenges and more. MyFlex Learning helps you create and manage flexible time for any purpose. And with the seamless SIS integration, a student locator, flexible daily rostering, and intuitive mobile app, it eliminates the common challenges of implementation and management. If you want to see for yourself, visit myflexlearning.com forward slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year of use. That's myflexlearning.com forward slash BE. You'll learn all about MyFlex Learning, what it can do for your school, and you'll receive a $500 off offer for your first year. Check it out. Are there particular areas in which consensus is achievable that leaders may, you know, not assume it is or may not even seek that type of a solution, right? Because they, they think, well, there's either this, this issue is too complex and in the weeds and it's not worth it to right. try to get more people involved here, or there's no way we can get the vast majority of people to agree to this. We just need to make a decision. I think we can both speak to this, but I've seen it consensus work in school discipline issues with very diverse stakeholders. I've seen it take on questions of equity, which is a very hot topic with a diverse political group. One of my favorite things about one of the communities I worked in where we built a consensus around a set of equity recommendations is that right as the heat in this country was really taking on around equity, there was a school board meeting and Actually, a lot of people came to protest the school district taking questions around equity or working on the issue of equity. And so someone would come up and rail about kind of equity or why is the school district taking this on and then be like, well, but I really like recommendations three, nine, seven, 15, and 22, because I was on the committee and it was actually really great to work with people on those recommendations. And we have found that it forces a different type of conversation across the political spectrum to say, how are we doing this? And we don't come to 100% agreement. We don't think that's actually feasible. And it's actually okay for community to have dissent and discussion and conflict. But we say we should strive for 80 to 90% alignment. And it just takes a whole different type of listening and discussion and work time. But there's a misnomer that it has to take longer. It actually doesn't actually necessarily mean take longer. It just reconstructs the time that we're actually just deciding and designing for. Right. And yeah, and you mentioned some of these school board meetings and plates and the, you know, all, whether things take longer or not. I mean, it, <laughs> it you can much more quickly get to a, a productive, workable system, right? Because I mean, there's been also these uh, occasions of late where, I mean, we're, we're in the, the midst right now, right, of, of, of districts that have uh, removed certain books from their libraries. And then when they actually trace, okay, well, where did this all come from? It was like, one parent's complaint. <laughs> it was there was no actual broad perspective about these things, but it was like by failing to attempt to empower the community, we're actually end up potentially empowering the one bad faith actor who is just the most the loudest person in the room or the most persistent. You know, which makes me wonder: Are there? We're, so we're trying to right maximize the number of voices. Are, are there certain guardrails that should be in place? Are there ways to continue to ensure that it's practical? Because we are, we're working with limited time, limited resources, limited things, but yet trying to say, okay, realistically, the more people that get involved and know what we're doing and have dialogue, and, and we can come to more of an understanding versus if we don't attempt to do it, we're you know, probably end up worse off one way or another. Yep. I mean, we, there's a lot of sort of reframing that has to happen in people's minds that like sometimes engaging with your community feels like a, like a third rail, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're, you touch it and something terrible is going to happen to you. As opposed to thinking about it as something that has a lot of energy in it, like a, like a live wire that can, if you hook it up right and think about it in the right way, it can be a source of power and a source of energy. And so what we think about is uh, to build on what Lana was saying earlier, like you need a group of people stick together for a bit. They're going to learn from one another and they're going to create something. They're going to make some decisions about it. And the, the guardrails that you want to put on it, I think are often that clarity that he was talking about, like you're clear about what the thing is going to be and you're clear about your decision-making processes. You got to be very clear about the scope of 
the authority that the group has. And so can we just make sure that when a, when a school leader or a district leader is putting forward the dilemma, it's actually within the scope of their authority and they're okay with what the group is going to do? Because if they're not actually okay with it and they actually do want to bound it, but don't tell the community that in the first place, then that's a trust breaker, right? Uh -huh. You have to be really clear that, yes, like this is, these are the, these are my hopes, right? And these are, this is the authority that I'm giving you. I'm good with your decisions around this thing. And if you do have certain limits that you do, that you know, have to be a part of the, the end solution, stay those upfront. And if you learn them along the way, make sure that you're just very transparent. It's like, okay, the conditions have changed. Here's what I now understand is politically feasible. I'm coming to you because I'm also a co-creator and, and a bringer of knowledge and context here. And I'm not hiding the ball. And I didn't know about this beforehand. And so I would, or else I would have told you. But you just have to be really vulnerable and transparent in a way that I think that leaders are sometimes a little hesitant because they're afraid of the backlash. But we found that if you, are really transparent with that group and build and really pay attention to building trust along the way, then they actually can hear, they can hear that conditions have changed or change the terms a little bit, but as right. long as that's done in a consistent way. Yeah. And I, that certainly that transparency and communicating out information practically and in listening, you know, relates to the, the shared languages, right? I mean, for mm -hmm. example, a couple of years ago, I was working with a company who creates instructional and curriculum and instructional materials, right? Math and language arts. And part of their core practice has always been ensuring everything's culturally responsive, right? They have very diverse teams that work on this. They, they put a lot of work and effort into it. But because the materials are known to be culturally responsive, this was during the height of the uproar around critical race theory. Sorry, yeah. I'm thinking of the I was like CTR, sorry, critical race theory, CRT, <laughs> and then everything that was going on. This district that was working with them was getting bombarded by phone calls about, do these materials, do they teach CRT? And the vast majority of them, from the way they were described to me, were not angry calls. They were curious calls from people who had heard something about this CRT, right? And, and they didn't really have any idea what it was. And, and then they were conflating all these terms together, culture responsive, diverse, equity, SEL, social whatever the case yeah. may be, right? All these things, and the same thing with the social emotional learning, where when parents are pulled that you want schools to teach your kids life skills, they overwhelmingly say yes. When they say social emotional learning, they just don't even know what that means, right? And it's, it's jargon. It's not a term they're really familiar with. So it depends on what it's called. And then that term also can get conflated with other things where they're opposed to it. The same thing they would say they were in favor of if it was called a different name. So I think all of this, number one, yes, it continues to speak to the importance of the proactiveness of communication and saying, if we're getting out ahead of things and telling people what we are working on, then they don't have a, a misconception later on, but also shared common language let's talk about things in terms we all understand we all know what we're talking about and let's find a way where we're in dialogue where we're not either gatekeeping information by use of jargon that nobody can access or you know shooting ourselves in the foot by undermining our own initiatives by calling them by words that people don't like if they actually are in support of the substance it's really an important point, Ross, honestly. I mean, I think that the we've seen this really interesting dynamic play out in education where a group of parents are interested, they're concerned, and they're asking questions. And I've seen this in my career on the left and the right and mm -hmm. kind of put like transpartisan, like parents have questions about the after-school program. And mm -hmm. the initial reaction from educators I've seen sometimes is, how dare they ask questions? Uh, mm -hmm. of us. And I think that in our experience, when school leaders are open and create context for that shared understanding and shared reality, we can put it, we can build an understanding of what's really going on here. I've run community processes where that one parent or those two parents are in the process alongside a ton of other parents. They get to speak their piece, but they also have to receive the wisdom and insight of other parents and make a proposal together. 
And that's a very different thing than saying, oh my gosh, we have a couple of parents who are really concerned and they're showing up to school board meetings and we just got to like keep going. And we saw this actually in the Virginia election a few years back where um, a lot of parents were concerned about uh, school resources. And we saw a response from a lot of teachers as um, parents don't have a role in uh, this. They should just trust us and leave it to that. Now, I might have concerns about the politics of some of those folks uh, pushing on the school system. Yet there is a long, rich tradition of civil rights groups pushing on our education system to, through community organizing and mobilizing, to reach the promise of equity and opportunity for all kids too. So I believe as uh, someone who believes in pluralism and democracy, I have to accept the legitimacy of any sort of democratic claim on our school system to whether or not it's actually meeting the needs of our families and communities and students. And so the response can't just be, trust us and leave us alone. It has to be, let's get vulnerable together. Let's have deep conversations and let's take on some of these questions. And we may end up disagreeing and that's okay. You now have a recourse. You got to, you can vote on the school board election. You can petition your state rep. There are other vehicles to do this, but the closed system as an island, building a stronger wall to keep the sea back is no longer a solution. Yeah, and I even that example you just referenced about Virginia can be a good illustration of how when we're out of practice with having these conversations, right, and dialoguing about it, one, we don't uh, <laughs> articulate things adequately, and also we haven't developed the relationships and the trust and the benefit of the doubt to say, okay, not every idea comes across right, but we kind of know what we're working toward, right? This was turned into a whole soundbite and talking point around that um, parents aren't going to decide what schools teach or something like that. And, you know, it left it to individuals to parse, well, that the point is that it is a democratic process because you elect the school board and the school board just right. and there is a whole process there. But when it just comes across as basically saying like, you're not going to bully us into doing things differently versus just kind of actually being able to dialogue around the system that does exist and how that works and what all the avenues are to have input into that and to do so in a way that's really productive, then I'm just hearing it as, okay, you don't want me involved in this. And now I can be, you know, I might want to make a different decision, even if ultimately, um, in so many of these cases, it's like the, the two supposed sides that argument they aren't necessarily saying uh, opposing viewpoints. They're just talking about completely different things. <laughs> and it's like, if you, if I ask you, um, what do you think about the Godfather? And you tell me, well, I thought that Pacino's performance in Serpico was kind of underwhelming. Like, what? I don't. What does that have to do with anything? <laughs> we're not. We're not talking about the same thing at all. <laughs> but it's like, for some reason, there's something where you know we we don't have the same references. We don't have the same context. Right. And you know, you may very well be arguing in favor of, for example, a word that. I mean, I've I've had discussions with author, I mean, I had a conversation on this very podcast with Baruti Kefele about his book, The Equity and Social Justice 50. And even he talked about, look, what even is this word equity, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like having worked in, you know, inner city schools for decades and worked with all kinds of school leaders and things and saying like, this word was not even part of our vocabulary back when I was in schools and now we had to start attacking it because people can see it in a bunch of different ways and ultimately most most people especially those who are really engaging in good faith right are making arguments in favor of what they perceive to be a pathway to equity mm -hmm. there's different opinions on how to achieve that but most people but they might not use that word. They might not agree on what that word means. They might think that when somebody else is using that word, it's arguing against them, even if it's not, right? It just goes like, I mean, it's about the common language, but it's also just about, are we practiced in having the conversations? 
are we at a point where at the very least we know each other well enough to believe in each other's intentions and character to say like even if right if i don't agree with everything you said i agree with what you're trying to do and we can find a common ground but you know there's a a certain tone deafness to the closed system and in the closed system right you're talking to each other you're in a silo and you just lose all perspective on the fact that nobody else would even know what we were talking about here. Right. Yeah. I, I'd say, I think that one of the things that we <clears throat> recommend as a strategy that's been super successful in a bunch of different contexts that we've worked in is, is using, drawing from some of the design thinking work that's been pioneered by lots of different organizations, but National Equity Project and Stanford D School and and actually having members of the team do empathy interviews with each other and also do empathy interviews with people in their networks. And then you bring that data back in and people feel heard, like even within the team, the empathy interviews with each other really builds a pretty deep sense of connection. And you bring in the empathy interview data from the outside of the team in the community, broader community, and you spend time making sense of that together and actually getting to a clear problem definition. What is the thing that we are solving for? What is the issue? Uh, because that is a really sharp point of getting to a shared reality. Like, okay, this is what we are talking about. This is the problem. Uh, and getting on the same page of that, about that is one of the most important things that you can do when you're, uh, when you're trying to get um, open system work done. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's such a consistent principle in all forms of innovation, right? That you don't want to be a solution in search of a problem. We need to agree on what we're trying to solve first, and then we can get some good ideas. So before we wrap up here, there's one of your particular principles that I wanted to touch on, because I think it speaks to how this is asset-minded, abundance-based work of how we can really grow and achieve more. It's not just about solving some of our current problems and that's assembling abundance partnerships. Can you guys talk about that and what that's all about? Sure. This is, you know, we have kind of three stages of the principles. We have the kind of preparing stage, which is, you know, your leadership, understanding your community. We have the provoking stage, which we have, I think, spent most of our time today talking about, which is how to design a space and then model democracy in the space to make decisions. That's the provoking and then we have the propelling stage, which is, okay, now you've had a breakthrough, you've kind of have some co-creation, some co-production is starting to emerge. How do you then wire the system up or wire community groups together to think differently about their work in these spaces? And one of the things that we encounter all the time and that we know is a major challenge in our society writ large is the idea of scarcity. The idea that if you have some, I have less. The idea that there's a finite amount of love, kindness, money, time, resource, right. whatever it is that exists. And that what we have seen consistently in the breakthrough arrangements that actually move systems forward is wiring and assembling for abundance and coming to believe that there's actually plenty to go around and plenty to uh, be achieved together. And that through coalition and agreements, um, and which are very hard, and what we would say, this is advanced level open system work. And you know, I've worked with a lot of community coalitions, people who are deep in this, and this is an area of deep struggle and challenge that we are so wired for scarcity. Um, and it's really funny, oftentimes I hear some uh, school leader or someone will say, well, there isn't actually, um, uh, enough money for everyone to get some. And I say, well, that's probably true to some degree. And I can't tell you how many times I've been in nonprofits or school systems where literally within three months, we talk about how we have no money and then we have too much money and we have to spend down. So I do think that we should interrogate our sense of scarcity. What does it mean to have enough? And when organizations come together to do something that they couldn't do alone, so much more is possible. This is the coalitions that topple inequitable institutions. These are the departments working together to achieve breakthrough results for kids. These are leaders navigating new waters together and seeing something bigger possible. And it's critical for our work moving forward is to believe there's enough for everyone to create abundance for that sort of connection. Right. Or to find ways to create that, right? You, you mentioned earlier, and as a 
example of a challenge, right? Trying to boil the ocean. And what we've proven is if all 8 billion of us work together, we, we can do that via climate change. <laughs> but the point is, you know, and this is something I've, I've talked to a lot of school and district leaders about, like, what is the role of an individual district leader in advocating for the system as a whole, right? Because we all have a lot on our plates and we're looking at what are our immediate challenges in our schools and districts. But if we're all having the same problem and, and our only way to combat it is to see it as a zero sum game, I need to fight for the resources. Somebody else doesn't have them. I mean, if I'm on mission about access and opportunity, equitable education, um, yeah, I was hired to leave my district, but are the students in my district any more important than the other district that's not getting the resources because I'm getting them or the other school that's not? If we work together, can we have a broader voice? I mean, so often as we're challenged by so many things right now, teacher shortage, right? Retention and recruitment issues, funding challenges, whatever. The education profession, unfortunately, is the worst spokesperson and advocate for itself in kind of having that voice to say, look, here is the absolutely critical work we're doing here. And here's what it requires. And here's how we need to really band together to yep. change the system versus a lot of times making the best of a system that is broken in ways that we can't, we just can't do anything about as an individual. Um, not easy answers to any of those because ultimately like there's just current urgent you know, challenges and there's the the political aspects of things and all but to say like if it is if it is objectively the case that there are not enough resources for everybody and if our mission is equity access and opportunity for everybody then we need to change that reality in a bigger way. And, and I think that's what ideas just like this are potentially setting the foundation for, for, for thinking bigger, thinking beyond our closed walls, right? And our systems and what we're doing and looking at, okay, how do we um, kind of take that to a bigger level? Donnie and Landon, what, what else are you working on? Where else can our listeners learn more about your work? Well, we would invite folks to visit www.theopensystem.org, which includes links to the book and where you can purchase that, and also some evidence of some of the work that we've done all across the country. In addition, you'll see some features and profiles of some of the folks that are in our community. We call them the openers and residents, represent a host of organizations and across the country doing open systems work. We're just so excited to be here. And Glenn, you want to add to that? Nope. Just want to say thank you, Ross, for the opportunity. We know there are a ton of people out there who are aspiring to do this work, already doing this work. And, you know, we often, the, the, the greatest compliment we ever get is people saying like, this is the thing I'm doing and I don't have language for it. And now I feel like I understand what I'm trying to do. And that's inspiring to think that maybe through your podcast, we've reached more of those people and that we'll meet new people that will teach us more about the practice itself and help change our language and keep it adapting over time. And that's our aspiration. And we're grateful for the time. Absolutely. So listeners, the book is The Open System. It's published by Harvard Education Press. You can find it at theopensystem.org or also Amazon, wherever else you get your books. So check that out. Please do subscribe to The Authority for more in-depth author interviews like this one. Visit bpodcast.network to learn about all of our shows. Landon and Donnie, thanks so much for being on The Authority. Thanks, Ross pleasure this has been the authority podcast hosted by ross romano edited by gage sanderson do you want to simplify your school's technology save teachers time and improve students performance on state assessments you can do it all but don't waste another minute Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.